In June of last year, Gallup released an interesting poll. And in all honesty, this poll should have sent shockwaves throughout all of Christianity. Now, sadly, it didn't. Most of us have never heard of this particular poll. Most of us didn't know it existed. Most of us didn't even know the study was conducted. I know I wasn't aware of it myself until I was doing a little research for this morning's Bible study. And in some regards, I think that maybe um, the study didn't gain as much attention within the evangelical community because the title of the poll, of the study, was a bit misleading. In some regards, most of us would have looked at the poll and been like, oh, that's exactly what I assumed about everyone around me. And the, the title was the three and four, and the United States still see the Bible as the word of God. That's not a very shocking uh, uh, position that's actually quite encouraging. Unless you begin to read the poll and you move from the title to kind of the byline into the nuts and bolts. You see, buried deep within what Gallup's research revealed was that while it is true that 75% of Americans believe that the Bible is the word of God, only an astounding 27% of Christians believe the Bible as the word of God should be taken literally. Like that number's down 10 points since 1970. Uh, let me give you the particulars of the poll. There were four questions presented, four uh, positions offered concerning the Bible. The first, as just mentioned, uh, if you believe that the Bible is the actual word of God that should be taken literally, that's 27%. If you believe that the Bible is the actual word of God, but there are multiple interpretations possible, that represents 31% of Christianity. If you believe that the Bible is inspired by God, but it's not to be taken literally, that's also 31%. If you believe that the Bible is nothing more than an ancient book of fables, history, and precepts, that's 7%. Seven, 7%. And you should know that doesn't total up to 100, but 4% just had no opinion. It gets worse than that. If you limit these four positions, these four options to just three, by removing that category, actual word of God, multiple interpretations possible, the numbers move disproportionately the wrong direction. If you believe that the Bible is the actual word of God should be taken literally. So you have three options. The number moves from 27% to 34%. You're like, oh, that's encouraging. I mean, that's up 21 points. If you believe that the Bible is inspired by God, but not to be taken literally, that number with only three options moves from 31% to 52%. That's up 41 per percentage points. If you believe that the Bible is an ancient book of fables, histories, precepts, that moves from seven to 10 points, up 30%, four still had no opinion. So if you remove that option that the Bible is God's word, but there are multiple interpretations, more people move to the, eh, I don't know really about the Bible being literal at all, versus those who do. It moves the wrong way, which tells us that the church should be alarmed that while, yes, three out of four Christians in the United States believe the Bible is God's word, less than one of those three hold to a literal interpretation. Now, don't get me wrong. 
As a literalist, I fully admit that the Bible employs all types of literary techniques to get across the message. You'll find within scripture all kinds of literary techniques. Things from like parables, metaphors, songs, poems, allegories, similes, hyperbole, even irony. Things that aren't necessarily designed to be taken literally. However, I do hold to the firm belief that when such techniques are being employed by the biblical authors to make a, a, a point, they'll let you know they're doing so. Like, think of Jesus. Jesus wanted what he said to be taken literally. And when he didn't, he told you, hey, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to teach in parables. Let me even define the parable, define the purpose of the parable. Jesus was really clear. Take what I'm saying literally. If I'm speaking allegorically or figuratively or any of these other techniques through parable, I'll just let you know. So we're all on the same page. Like when Jesus said, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes, but the, comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was being very literal. His point was to be taken literally. But when he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Like he's setting up a an, kind of an allegorical idea. So as a literalist, yes, I, I fully admit the Bible will employ all types of techniques. That's cool. I get it. The authors will tell you. People have problems with the book of Revelation. I just don't get it. I don't understand it. The problem with a lot of our misconceptions of the book of Revelation is yes, the book of Revelation is to be taken literally unless the author is telling us to take what he's saying figuratively. Just go through the book of Revelation and just highlight all the times he's like, like or as. Like John's seeing things he has no idea how to describe. And so he uses figurative speech to do his best to paint a picture. He's being literal, but he's also employing figurative uh, aspects. You see, of the three options presented in the Gallup poll, the idea that the Bible is inspired by God, but not to be taken literally, I believe is the most disingenuous and dangerous of all. If you abandon the idea that the Bible is to be taken literally unless the author says otherwise, you are left with now no basis at all for interpreting any of Scripture as ever being literal. And this has devastating consequences. For if the reader becomes the final arbitrator of the text and not the author, the authority of God's Word becomes relegated to just the perspective of each individual reader. The result? We've seen it. Christianity simply joins the rising tide of postmodern relativism because the truth, if we take this approach, is simply impossible to ascertain. You might read it one way. I might read it totally different. If there's nothing that's literal, it's all perspective, truth disappears. Is there any wonder that while we've seen this trend slowly creep into the church, the pulpit has disappeared. We have no reference of a pulpit in Scripture. But it's interesting to look at the pulpit from a historical perspective, the origins, the evolution of the pulpit. I think it's telling. During the 15 and 1600s, as the Bible was being translated into common languages, 
was being distributed for mass consumption during the reformer years. One historian, he says this, he says, quote, the Reformation led not only to a renewed emphasis upon the sermon, people are reading the Bible, understanding it for themselves, but he says, but the repositioning of the pulpit also took place to be the center of the sanctuary. So during the Reformation, when people are like rediscovering the Bible, and they're like, this is awesome. The pulpit became the center because the word of God was to be the center. Church historians believe this took place, quote, for the central position of a fixed pulpit suggested a theological prominence of the preaching of the word of God within the church. The pulpit grew to, quote, symbolize the Reformation's emphasis upon the centrality of God's word which explains why the reformers were known to have a pulpit that was massive. I think we have a picture we're gonna put up of, of a kind of a reformation pulpit. I mean, it was a huge monstrosity. It was big, it was domineering. It was without a doubt the center of everything happening in that sanctuary. It was perched up high. And the reformers taught that not only did this elevate and emphasize God's word, but also the man who would speak God's word. Now, since the Reformation, while the pulpit has remained central, it has endured kind of an evolution of sorts. <laughs> you might say the pulpit has undergone a reformation of its own. During the 1800s, the pulpit, while still remaining ornate, is a big thing still, big old piece of furniture, it still remained ornate. It still had like, it was the focal point. It was uh, a piece of art in a lot of ways, but it was moved from being perched up high to, as this picture will illustrate, being moved to eye level. And this was done intentionally. Though it still maintained the, uh, the elevation of the message. The church during this time was kind of concerned that the man maybe shouldn't be as exalted as the message. I mean, one dude being perched up way above everybody else. It just, eh, during the, people kind of got started to get a little weird about that. So they kept it center, they kept it big, they kept it ornate, they kept it central, but they brought it to eye level and they did this for this reason. They wanted to have the message and the church appeal to kind of the common man. The man was relatable over the next hundred years in order to de-emphasize the decadence of the church, appeal to the common man, but just kind of remove some of that like weird fluff, pulpits began to grow in their simplicity and functionality. I think we have a picture of Billy Graham. Um, you see the pulpit has changed. It's now not perched way up high. It's not just at eye level, but monstrous. It's now like, it's become really simple. It's kind of a big thing. I always, Pastor Chuck had like this gigantic wooden pulpit. It was simple, it was clean, but it was like, you knew it was there and you knew what was gonna happen there. So this began to take place. But during the 1980s and the 90s, as the church grew in its modernization, so did the pulpit. Instead of the traditional wooden look, pulpits quickly took on all different shapes and sizes, metallics and marble and plexiglass, steel, it was not just a wooden pulpit. It reflected how the church was trying to modernize to have a greater appeal to culture. But finally, as the United States plunged into a new millennia, 
and society shifted from modernism to postmodernism, the pulpit experienced, I think, its most dramatic transformation. With the rise of the seeker-friendly church model, corporate megachurches dominating the landscape, and the emergent church having its like two seconds in the sun, during the 2000s, there was kind of a, a, a general trend within Christianity. And that was that the worship experience started to become the primary emphasis of the Sunday service and not the teaching of God's word, which made sense, right? Because experience over truth, well, that just simply markets better to a postmodern culture. And almost overnight, something fascinating happened. The pulpit, the thing that was the very staple of the church since probably about 300 AD, it disappeared. Gone. Do you realize in the last 10 years, something that has been pivotal to the church since 300 is now totally absent from most churches? In many churches today, the pulpit has now been replaced with a high top table and a bar stool. There's no pulpit at all. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all pastors whose pulpits now reside in church storage have done so because of the inclusion of postmodern appeal and influence. I'm not making that blanketed accusation. You want to teach behind a, a, a circular table, you go for it. That's fine. But it's undeniable. The symbolism of seeing the pulpit removed from the church, see, that reality has historical significance. And I'm convinced it represents the larger trend taking place within the church. Are we surprised that today, knowing that 27% of Christians, only 27% hold to a literal interpretation of scripture, that the pulpit has disappeared? I mean, why should a church have as the focal point of their stage, the very item that represented the theological prominence of the preaching of God's word when the preaching of God's word is no longer prominent? It's actually consistent. I mean, if the truth of Scripture has been relegated to each individual's perspective, the preacher no longer has the right to assume a place of honor or a place of authority. In actuality, everyone's perspective concerning God's Word is of equal standing and equal value, which means the idea of this thing being right here separating you and me, it's offensive. You know, over the last 10 years or so, we've, we've had a phrase that's kind of rise to kind of the popular lexicon. You've heard it, the bully pulpit. How dare you have a pulpit? You're a bully. You stand behind there and as if your opinion was of more priority than mine. See, personally, at Calvary 316, we have a pulpit. It's pretty slick and modern, I like it. Uh, Still Company across the street did this piece. My brother actually whittled that out a piece of wood for me. Fits my iPad and all that. It's cool. But this baby, it's anchored to the floor. Well, I mean, to the stage. It's kind of anchored to another stage. But you get the point. Like, it's here. And it's not exactly going to move. And here's why. I'm into being modern and relevant. But this thing, 
it is significant. Like it, it really does symbolize something that I think is important. Throughout history, the pulpit has always represented, not my authority, no, but it has represented the authority of God's word and has symbolically separated the man speaking from the people listening, which is not a great thing necessarily for me because the person who is here, the Bible is clear is held to a higher account than anyone else in the church. That there is a greater responsibility for the man standing here doing this than for the person sitting there listening. That's why Paul would say, if you could do anything other than teach, like do it. Anything, by all means. But if you've been gripped and called by God, you can't. Which leads me to my larger point. I know this is quite an introduction. Because the pulpit contains such symbolism, as a pew sitter, you also have a great responsibility. Because of what this represents, because of what this historically has always signified, you have a responsibility, friend, to ensure that whatever is proclaimed from this pulpit is the truth of God's word. That's your responsibility. For with great honor comes greater responsibility. And we see a great example of this. Verse 10, chapter 17, the book of Acts, we're told, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me just kind of catch you up. Things become explosive in Thessalonica. Second missionary journey, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, working their way around, at this point, Greece. They're in Thessalonica. They're teaching the word. God's doing a work. People get upset about it. As a result of getting upset about it, they come to where Paul and Silas are staying, hoping to pull them out, take them before the magistrates. Well, Paul and Silas, you know, had gone down to have a coffee break. I don't know. They weren't home. And what happens is they're going to grab someone. So they grab Jason, the house's owner, a couple of the brothers. The whole situation works there. Now, Jason gets out on bail. Things kind of de-escalate, but as soon as Paul and Silas resurface, this mob's going to tear them from limb to limb. I mean, it is a explosive situation, which is why this new church in Thessalonica find it prudent that, you know what, we should send them away by night. Like, listen, guys, you should get out of town. You dodged a bullet. They came for you. They took us. It was cool, but they're going to find you, so you should leave. And they head to the nearby town or sent to the nearby town known as Berea. It's just 40 miles southwest from Thessalonica. Now, on a side note, it is very likely that Timothy remained in Thessalonica. If you recall, Luke is not with them presently. He was left in Philippi to pastor this young church. It seems likely that Timothy stayed in Thessalonica to help with the early formations of this baby church. The text says, right, you saw it, that they only sent Paul and Silas away. Now, while Timothy hung back, it's clear by verse 14 that Timothy has rejoined Paul and Silas in Berea. Now, according to the passage, as Paul had done in Thessalonica elsewhere, upon arriving into Berea, he doesn't lay low, does he? He goes to the synagogue like he always does to preach the Bible. Verse 11 
We're told concerning these Bereans there in Thess- uh, 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 these Bereans in the synagogue, we're told that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Now, Luke does something important here you should keep in mind. He contrasts the reactions of those within this synagogue who were told are Jews and Greek proselytes. He contrasts their reaction to Paul with the reaction that we found in Thessalonica. And Luke's conclusion by setting up this comparison, this contrast, is that these in Berea were, quote, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, in the Greek, this word fair-minded, it means to be well-born or to be noble-minded. It's a really interesting word. It's the only time that Luke uses this word in the book of Acts. So he establishes this contrast. The Bereans, the the Thessalonians, one was more fair-minded than the other, and he explains the two things that made these Bereans different. What made them more fair-minded? Two things. Note, first, they received the word of God with all readiness. Literally, readiness of mind. You see, when it came to the things of God, the men and women who made up this local synagogue, they demonstrated immediately an openness, an excitement, an eagerness to receive the truth of God's word. These Bereans possessed a hunger for Bible teaching, but their zeal was tethered because, secondly, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You see, on one side of the equation, these Bereans were really excited to hear the things that Paul had to share from the Bible, from Scripture. They were pumped up about it. They turned out in droves. They were eager to listen. But on the flip side of it, they didn't allow their enthusiasm to carry them into like this weird place of blind acceptance. We're told in order to determine, quote, whether these things were so, the things Paul was teaching them, we're told they Search the scriptures daily to find out. Not once, not twice, every day. They came to the synagogue, you know, with their scroll. They opened it and they're listening. They're receiving. They're open, they're enthusiastic. But when Paul said amen, they went to grab lunch, they powwowed. And they open the Bible for themselves and they begin to discuss, like, are these things so? Does this line up with what we know? You see, understand, the approach of these Bereans is worthy of our emulation. While they were open to instruction, which is significant, to be open to instruction, the Bereans were also free thinkers. Like sometimes we, we, we almost equate having an openness to be taught by the preacher like that we should just accept everything blindly, that that's you know, not being rebellious and being submissive and all those things. And yet these Bereans illustrate that they were open to hear, they were open to being instructed, but they were free thinkers. They didn't just blindly accept what Paul had to say as if they were mindless zombies, a walking dead church. But they didn't immediately dismiss his words as if they were pridefully above instruction. It's a wonderful balance. 
the willingness to receive, <laughs> but also the prudency to validate. They respectfully listened to what Paul was teaching them from the scriptures. But then they went to the scriptures themselves to measure his words with the truth. They were ready to learn, which is humility, but they were prudent to evaluate. That's wise. And there are two reasons that you should use scripture to evaluate everything said from the pulpit. Like the pulpit's significant. The pulpit's important. What this thing represents is not something that's trivial. Your responsibility is to judge what's happening here like a Berean, taking my words and measuring it to the truth. That's your job. That's your responsibility. And if you use scripture to evaluate what's coming from a pulpit, there are two things that, that become beneficial. First, using scripture to evaluate the words of the preacher will help you determine if what you're being taught is true or heretical. Now, on a side note, if myself, I mean this, by the way, I absolutely mean it. If myself or anyone to occupy this pulpit after me begins to teach you a doctrine that is not consistent with scripture, you throw their butt on the curb. That's your responsibility. If what's happening here is heresy, doesn't align to scripture, it's your responsibility to stand up and say no. And I'm not leaving because it's my church. You're leaving because you're a heretic. If it's me or anyone to come after me, and I hope this church is around a lot longer than me. You know, it's a sad but true reality that because there is power in God's word, pastors have, have and will use scripture to justify all types of positions, all types of heresy. Like remember, even Satan, and tempting Jesus, you remember the wilderness temptation, Matthew chapter four, and seeking to tempt Jesus into sin. What did Satan do? He taught some Bible studies. Like he used scripture to try to build up an argument why Jesus should bow down and worship or throw himself off the temple or change rocks into bread. Peter, he recognized the inescapable reality of false teachers he guarantees it. Second Peter 2 verse 1, he says, there will be, will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So if Peter's saying, this is going to happen, as you're sitting there, you should have an open ear. You should evaluate. You should test, which is why in 2 Timothy 2, Paul exhorted Timothy to remind the churches of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about with words of no profit to the ruin of the hearers, but being diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly doing what? Dividing the word of truth. You should take what I'm saying and evaluate it by the truth. The second reason this is important is that using scripture to evaluate the words of the preacher will help you determine if what is being said is the truth of God or the opinion of man. Like, I hope you understand that there is a fundamental difference between a pastor who teaches from the Bible and a pastor who simply teaches the Bible. I'll say that again. There is a fundamental difference between a pastor who teaches from the Bible and the pastor 
who simply teaches the Bible. Sad to say, but instead of teaching the Bible, expositional sermons, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just giving you the word, many pastors use the Bible to simply validate the point that they're wanting to make. We often call them topically based sermons. Now, don't get me wrong. You should evaluate expositional teachers, please. Because though a pastor may open the Bible and then teach through the Bible, doesn't automatically guarantee they're teaching truth or teaching truth accurately. I know a lot of expositional Bible teachers that teach that way because they're lazy and teach that way because they kind of can mask their opinion under the banner of why teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Test, verify. But that said, while topical messages can have an appropriate place in the life of the church, and I had to be careful there because from time to time I'd like to teach a topical message, and if I wedge myself in here, then you're going to be like, I heard a Bible study. You're doing a topical thing. I don't like that. (laughs) So I had to kind of like, I got to work in a bit of a, you know, keep in mind, topical messages do have a place in the life of the church, you know? Just in case I ever want to throw one of those out. But here is the reality. If you teach topically, like that's what happens. It's much easier to blur the line between the preacher pointing to scriptural truth or the preacher using scriptural truth to make his own point. It's harder. You have to be careful. This is why you should be ready to receive, but Berean enough to evaluate. You might not be able to control what the pastor says from the pulpit, but never forget, it is your right and responsibility to evaluate the message and then wisely decide if you're going to allow that man the all-important task of teaching you God's word. I hope you realize that those, like teachers, automatically leave an impression. Teachers impress on students. It's part of the relationship that exists. We're always impressed by the people we give that platform. It's why I'm, I'm, I'm often um, like very careful who it is that I listen to in my sermon prep. Um, I try to have a diversity so that I, I just don't sound like one guy just repeating things. Like, you know what I mean? Like you have to be careful on who you allow that, that, that privilege. It's a weighty privilege. They're impressing on you. And, and it's with that in mind, that I just want to get real practical for just a moment. Let me give you seven early warning signs. You might want to find a different preacher. This is dangerous. <clears throat> I hope none of you get up and leave. But, but seriously, not all of you are going to stay here at this church. Many of you move. Um, sometimes we relocate. Sometimes it's just another season of life. Like, like, you're probably not going to be here till you're dead. So at some point, you're going to have to go to another church. So I'm just like, hey, I'm going to help you, give you some advice on how to evaluate the next place you go. First, it's a, it's a problem. One, the preacher never opens the Bible during the Sunday service. If you go to a church and that happens, like, not a good place. Two, the preacher doesn't encourage the congregation to study the Bible on their own. That's another sign that you might want to find another preacher. He doesn't use the Bible, and he doesn't tell me to use the Bible, so what are we doing? Three, the preacher rarely uses Scripture to substantiate his positions. So he might teach topically. They might sound great. 
12 keys to financial success, but he never points that to scripture. It's his opinion, not scripture's opinion. It might be a good opinion, but it's not scripture's opinion unless he's tying it back to scriptural principles. Four, the preacher openly contradicts essential Christian doctrine. (laughs) Flares flying all over the place, right? The Trinity doesn't exist. I think I'm gonna find another church. You know what I mean? Like if he's openly contradicting essential Christian doctrine. You know, I found that if a pastor ever gets up and he says, I got a new revelation from God. I'm like, so did I, I'm leaving. (laughs) Like the old adage, if it's new, that ain't true. I mean, we've been doing this for like 2000 years with the same book. If it's new, it ain't true. And we've kind of evaluated that. So if someone's contradicting essential Christian doctrine, bounce. Five, the preacher de-emphasizes core spiritual concepts like sin and judgment. Like you need to run because all that preacher's doing is tickling your eardrums. It's telling you what you wanna hear, not what you need to hear. No growth happens that way. Like I need people to tell me I'm fat for me to do anything about it. Although I'm not really doing anything about it, which makes me a hypocrite, dadgummit. I, do, I, I did move the elliptical from downstairs to the bedroom thinking, well, I never use it there. Maybe I'll move it there. And other than the workout I got when I had Andrew help me move the thing, it has still sat there. I, I gotta find another location for it. It's just not working. Six, the preacher spends his time pushing an alternative agenda. Have you ever been to one of those churches? Everything's about money. It's all about money. And it's not really that the church needs the money. It's that the, the pastor's Bentley needs new tires. You know what I mean? Like, like you should be very careful on like a pastor that just one trick pony pushing one thing. And finally, the preacher reacts poorly when he's asked to validate his biblical stance. Does Paul react poorly when they're evaluating what he's saying? There's no evidence for that, right? See, a pastor should be transparent, should be open. Now, now, in, in this thread of being very practical, let me give you eight characteristics of a pastor worthy of the position. Basically, I had to think of myself and, and come up with eight things. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. No, no, seriously, in going through this and kind of writing this myself, uh, there were some things where I'm like, oh, I should delete that because it doesn't apply to me. And the Lord's like, don't you dare delete that. You just be humble and say, I'm growing, work in progress. First, his sermons are biblically biblically founded. I think that's a good thing. Two, his sermons are more interested in truth than mass appeal. He's willing to say controversial things. Doesn't shy away from things that are hard. Like if the Bible's talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit, he teaches about gifts of the Holy Spirit, though the majority of people are like, those people are crazy that speak in tongues, right? I mean, his sermons, while being biblically based, more interested in truth than mass appeal, his sermons demonstrate hard work, creativity, and diligent study. I really hope you feel that way when you come here at Calvary 316. You might think I'm an idiot or a moron, but at least you can say, that's an idiot who's trying. Like, hey, like he's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, but at least he's giving it his best, you know? Clearly works hard. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna say. 
<clears throat> his sermons, I think this is important. I had to really think about this one. His sermons display an openness and humility to be taught by others. I think that's a good thing. Like when you're sitting there and you're hearing the pastor just like, hey, you know what? Charles Spurgeon just said it way better than I could ever say it. So instead of like reinterpreting it the way that like making it my own, I'll just point to him. Like David Guzik, he's had this great, like so that you're from the point of like, hey, you know, he, there's influences because it's not him going willy-nilly figuring it out. Like there, he's, he is allowing himself to be taught, to teach. I think that's important. Fifth, his sermons and his life are consistent with one another. That was the one I wanted to delete. But I couldn't. It's what I strive for. It's what I fall very short of. I'm a sinner like you. Six, his sermons do more to glorify Jesus than draw attention to himself. Like I, I, I thought for years it was so cliche. It was so like cheesy. But I get it now. I, I, one of those things with age, like you just, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, he always had this thing uh, in Bible college, it, really anywhere I ever heard him speak, where he would get done preaching the word, and people would like, you know, go to give a round of applause, and he would shut people up. Like, he would physically stop people, and he would just say, you want, if, if you feel compelled, you just point to him. And literally, like, you just, after like that first Friday lecture, everyone got it, and then from that point forward, he'd get done, amen, and everyone would just go like that. This was about Jesus. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about the glorification or the, the exaltation of the man, but the message. Seven, his sermons encourage the congregation into a deeper level of personal study. I, I like the fact that what Paul was saying so hit them here, in here, that what, what was the reaction? Man, I'm glad I got a Bible study. I'll leave my Bible in the back till next Sunday. No, like they, they went home and like were just devouring it. Like I think that's a mark of a good pastor, of a good preacher. When his Bible studies spark a response to more Bible study on your own, I think that's cool. And finally, his sermons are transparent, sourced, and open to further discussion. This Berean example is one of the driving factors behind the development of C316.tv. Not only do we provide you the written transcript of the Bible study, so there's no confusion as to the fundamental point we're trying to make. Like, you know, I mean, anybody that publicly speaks, you can sometimes twist your words, you can say something in a way that might have led to, but that's why we write it down. So it's like, I don't, I'm not sure that came across the way you intended it, but I know how you intended it because I was reading it. I think that's important. But we also, we source everything. The study I referenced, the Gallup poll, it's there. You can read the study on your own. We cite our sources. We provide you additional resources to study the words themselves, the passage on your own. Be open to instruction, but test and verify. Now, as a result of Paul's teaching and this Berean approach, we're told, therefore, many of them believe, this is a reference to the Jews that are in the synagogue, and also not a few of the Greeks which means that there was a large group of Jews and a large group of Hellenistic converts to Paul's message, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, this is, this is that group of people causing a stir, they came to Berea and also stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, both Silas and Timothy, this is how we know he's now caught up, 
remain there. Now, if you recall, there was a similar dynamic in Galatia during Paul's first missionary journey. A group of disgruntled, vengeful Jews who had rejected Paul's message concerning Jesus not only ran him out of town, but proceeded to follow him from city to city to city, stirring up opposition. So what on the surface might have appeared to be like mass hysteria was in actuality nothing more than the work of like a few instigators, agitators. Now we see the same thing happening here in Greece. How long was Paul in Berea? We have no idea. But that said, as soon as the crowds were stirred up, once again, the brethren found it important and prudent to send Paul away, but Silas Timothy remained in order to continue the development of, of the new church. And, and from this, from Berea, he'll go to the sea, he'll go to Athens, we'll get all into all of that next Sunday. Now, before I close, I want to explain why Paul's main opposition came from such a small group of rejecting Jews. While it would appear, the rest of the unbelieving Roman world seemed indifferent. Like, have you kind of noticed that? Like, it's a strange phenomenon for Paul. Like, the gospel would spread, but the primary resistance didn't come from the pagan masses, but from a few religious zealots. Like, this religious minority was really upset. Everybody else was kind of like, ah, oh, whatever, that's cool, what? Fine. You know, the positive review. The positive review on like Amazon or sites that you buy things, when people go on to a product page and they leave a positive review. Like we've long understood that the people who write positive reviews like fall really into three categories. They're like legitimately customers who liked the product. They're the owner of the product and his buddies. Or it's a firm that's been contracted to flood your paid with positive feedback from what's actually fake consumers. Uh, Yelp and Amazon's actively trying to get rid of that. Don't trust every review you read. So we've understood where the positive reviewer comes from, but you know, like the negative reviewer, <laughs> you know that person, leaves half a star. The identity of that individual has been really actually quite mysterious. So in the hopes of shedding light on the psychology behind the negative review, an interesting study was recently conducted by Eric Anderson of Northwestern University in Duncan and Duncan Semester of the MIT Sloan School of Management. They did this. They analyzed data from an unnamed apparel company that markets specifically online. So they kind of had a, as, as much of a controlled study as they could. And what Anderson and Semester ended up realizing was completely unexpected. It was, it was shocking. Quote, it turns out that competitors are not necessarily the ones giving one miserable star to products they did not buy or experiences they did not have. Which means if there's a, a negative review of Calvary 316 on you know, something like Facebook, um, you know, it's not the other church down the street writing the review. Uh, but they find, quote, that it's customers. The customers do it. In fact, devoted customers. Of the, quote, registered customers who wrote over 325,000 reviews that they analyzed, it was found that 16,000, which was the total of the negative reviews, presented no evidence the former customer had actually purchased the new item they were writing the negative review concerning. You get that? So they were actually registered customers who had purchased things. They loved the company. They were dedicated they wrote a negative review, but they would write a negative review about a product they didn't buy. 
they've bought products before and they're writing negative reviews about products they haven't bought. That's weird. Like the reviews, they would read something like this. See if you can catch the train of thought. Quote, I should have read all the negative reviews before ordering. Please bring back the old style. Maybe you wrote that. (laughs) I ordered this item over your website. Why is it that good designs are always changed? Please go back to the original. I am on a, quote, made in the USA campaign. So I'm returning this item. Please stop importing. See, what Anderson and Semester discovered was that these, quote, cranky customers acted as self-appointed brand managers. In essence, the negative review was simply an outlet by which devoted customers could vent that a different product they enjoyed or the organization that they supported had changed in a way they didn't like. I'll give you an example. Harley Davidson did something stupid, but they decided, let's come out with a perfume. Not what I'm buying my wife for Valentine's Day or Christmas, right? The Harley Davidson perfume. Motor oil and some smudge and brill cream, like they're all packaged into one B.O. Ugh. Right, so like, by all means, you can have all the negative reviews in the world because the perfume has to be horrible. But the negative reviews, what flooded the website, were people that were dedicated Harley people who didn't buy the perfume, but wrote nasty things about it for one reason. They didn't like the fact that Harley had a perfume. It was an outlet to vent. As Mr. Semester put it, your best friends are your worst critics. Along the same thread of thought, I recently had a pastor friend warn me that the very people in your church who heap upon you the greatest praise will be the very people who spew the most vile venom as soon as you do something they don't like. Dedicated people take change very, very personally. You see, the reaction of these rejecting Jews was so visceral. Why? because they saw what Paul was doing as a personal attack. They'd been loyal customers, hadn't they? You know, to the initial product, the law, their religious structures, tradition, which meant that when Paul entered their synagogue, presenting a fundamental change to the product, you know, the product they really liked, found a lot of comfort in, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, they lashed out. They took it personally. They reacted with venom. Whereas the rejecting Greeks were like, yeah, I'm not buying into that, but I don't care. I don't care enough to make an issue of it. Anderson and Semester, they make another interesting observation that's worthy of our consideration. Though this type of of negative customer is the loudest, they they encourage businesses to ignore them because these naysayers tend to be a very small minority. Quote, The other conclusion from our study is that behavior online is too easily taken as a mirror of reality when it is nothing of the sort. What seems to be the voice of the masses is the voice of a self-appointed few, magnified and distorted. For every thousand customers, only about 15 write reviews. Conclusion. Be a Berean. Be a Berean. You have a responsibility to inspect evaluate and test everything that's coming from the pulpit you choose to sit under. Don't forget, 
while you're testing, that you should also be ready to receive the word with all readiness, the balance. Do you come on Sundays expecting to hear from God? Do you? Like, do you come on a Sunday morning like expecting? My week has stunk. It's been miserable. I need God, I need you to speak to me this. I'm coming. Coming to hear. You gotta give me something, Lord. Speaking to my heart, speaking to my life. Do you come ready? But then are you willing to do what he says? Like, don't forget our whole examination of the Bereans was set as a contrast, right? With the Thessalonians. The Bereans respectfully listened to what Paul had to say. They tested it with scripture and then they willingly accepted it. The Thessalonians dialogued with Paul for three weeks. Some accepted, a group of Jews rejected. And why? Well, by this reaction of them coming to Berea, it was clear. They were unwilling to change. They were unwilling to change. If you find yourself this morning being overtly negative over what's being said, like if you're taking the truth of what's being communicated as a personal attack, you need to realize that maybe the truth is attacking you. That's what it does. But that your problem isn't with the pastor. It's not actually with me. It's with God's word. And that reaction might actually be an indicator that you don't want to change. The word of God. It's powerful. The pulpit signifies this. Be a Berean. Be ready to receive, verify. And when you feel yourself like, oh, I, that guy. Maybe, just maybe, it's not this guy, but it's that guy trying to say something to you. And so, Father, with that word, we just want to allow that to sink in, to settle in 